This is the John Oakley Show podcast. All right, let's get started. It's the panel part of the program. Topics worthy of discussion for Pizzaville. Dial pound 3636. The Thursday edition sees familiar names and faces. Peter Sherman, broadcaster, businessman, and former conservative MPP. How's Mr. Sherman? I'm just fine and so happy to be aboard. No, not the ship in Yokohama, the Oakley Show. Well, there you go. Uh, they're almost one and the same. Uh, oh. <laughs> right. We got a little quarantine thing happening here. Nobody leaves for the next 40 minutes. Uh, David Wills, Senior Vice President of Media. Media profile. That's a leading Toronto public relations agency. How's Mr. Wills? I'm uh, coronavirus free and uh, having a good time here, John. <laughs> okay, uh, very good. Uh, not that we trust you on that matter, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Stephen Holiday rounds out the panel. Deputy Mayor, Councillor Ward Two at Tobacco Center. How's Stephen? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be back here with the panel. I missed you guys last week. I'll tell you, you know, I, I had to book it off because uh, it was a council day. We always block two days for council, but lo and behold, for the first time ever, we finished council in one day. I wonder if that has anything to do with 25 councillors. Yeah, well. We think so. (laughs) Okay, uh, that's one line of reasoning or uh, whatever, but uh, others would dispute that. However, i got to ask you something else. I was just talking to Steve Monroe. He's a transit expert, and uh, when we were talking about fare evasion, the study that came out, they're losing like $70.3 million annually on fare evasion. You heard about this? Yeah, we've looked at this through the audit committee. Uh, now, I haven't seen this most recent study, but I'm familiar with some of the numbers that were dealt with by the Auditor General and by the TTC, and they validated there's a big problem in this city, and in many ways it's understated. Um, uh, I, I'm glad that uh, some investment has been made to transit enforcement officers, and that's going to bring a return back. So I, I can't remember what the number is in the budget. Let's say it's a million and a half dollars brings us back $10 million in captured revenue because we know the TTC needs it and the taxpayers don't need to pay it. Well, there you go. Uh, all right. David Wills, you want to do a pine. Yeah, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I wanted to ask Stephen where the where the city's study is on traffic uh, parking violation uh, evasion is because, uh, you know, they everybody wants to go after the transit uh, evaders, which I'm fine with, but every single day I work on Richmond Street, every single day I see trucks parked illegally, blocked, double parked, blocking bike lanes, all of these things. And as I told Stephen earlier, you could wipe out property tax if you just put two dudes going up and down Richmond Street. Like the, the the traffic evasion stuff, which is actually snarling traffic and the and, and bugging the rest of us, if you crack down on that the way you're doing the same zealousness on the transit, this city would be running with the surpluses forever. Now, there's a little bit of truth in that because you're right. A little bit. It is, it, is, it is the people that snarl things up. And it all comes down to selfish behavior. It's selfish for people to try to beat the system on the TTC. I'm not convinced it's because you can't afford to pay. It's just because they see other people do it and they do it. And it, it's, Same with it's traffic, like, though. It, well, that's right. Same you see parking. one person run into Tim Hortons and leave their car idling on the side of the street, and the next person does it, and it creates all kinds of problems. Same thing with pedestrians that decide to cross when the hand is flashing. The People it, begin to pick up, pick up these habits, and they cause bigger damage than what they really understand. You know understand. what this reminds me of? Uh, Rudy Giuliani's broken windows approach to things. Uh, don't let the little stuff slide because it just leads to bigger problems down the road. Hey, so Sherman. you're saying I should break the windows of these cars? That well, are that's, yeah, the broken <laughs> windows theory. I like where He'll you're going. He'll do it anyway. Yeah, well, <laughs> but the idea that, you know, does, there make, uh, does it make sense then to uh, start 
see, people would say, well, you're being picky and petty, and this is just to gain, you know, a nanny uh, state or society. But uh, Sherman, is there anything to what Wills is proposing here? No, Wills is for a change, right. Um, the the um, I thought there was a way to recoup some of this money when you went to renew your uh, your plates, that they actually had a record of what was outstanding. I know that the, they do that with traffic. Yeah, he's tickets. saying they're not even dinging them to begin with. They're not even with. getting the ticket in the first place. Oh, so they're, they're not so they're not posting. So they don't have enough people. Interestingly, uh, when Stephen was talking about the investment of one million or one and a half million gets you back ten million, that's actually an investment, and there is a, a quantification of what you recoup. Uh, so I would say that uh, if it takes paying some more money, hiring some more people to be really stringent on the stuff that you're seeing, because it's not just Richmond Street, David, and we all know that, then you probably would have a return, and it's probably good money well spent. A return on investment. Put, the, put that on the to-do list. Uh, a return budget, on investment and the city of Toronto in the same breath. Can you see that? Budget, budget notes for 2021. Well, <laughs> hey, hang on here just a second. The budget was recently tabled, right? Yes. Okay. And the word investment came up several times. Am I right? Yes. It's working its way through the system right now as we speak. Well, okay. Uh, here's something we ought to swallow. Uh, city Council is investing... Uh, I don't know how much more money. You can give me the figure here, but uh, the mayor decided that, uh, you know, even in the aftermath of this Airbnb shooting, we've got to throw $6 million more Six dollars. Million. Yep. Right. But there's $180 million annually spent on these social programs to deter young people from falling off the straight and narrow. Are we getting return on our investment? Uh, who's auditing this? Very good question. Uh, so the, the things do come up from time to time, is it? As, uh, as an audit feature through the committee, but I don't have the magic answer to that question. I think the, the answer Does anybody? Is, well, I think it's all about politics, right? So the budget has to match the politics of city council or it would never make it through. And the facts are, are on the, the paperwork that comes through the budget committee. We spent a ton of money on social programs. Not everybody's happy about this. And, uh, you know, some of the feedback I hear are people that are just after the basic services, Snow plowing, road paving, grass cutting. We seem to forget about these things all the time. But it is contemporary right now to uh, to try to deal with this issue of gun violence. The city's going to be bringing in um, some more police officers, but uh, there are social programs that are being called for. And that will make some people happy and probably get this budget through council. I got to say this. I, you know, I can't believe, Stephen, you're one of my favorite people. I love being, I fight with wheels all the time. I never fight with you because we're mostly on the same side of the fence. But I can't believe a deputy mayor of the city and a counselor of high standing like you just gave an answer like you did. You, you, how come you don't know? How come you can pass on a budget and somebody can ask you a question about whether or not we're getting return on investment and you say, that's a good question. That's an inappropriate answer. Don't you agree? Well, fair enough, Peter, and and maybe the answer is is we should get more into the business of measuring the outputs of uh, the programs that we do, and I think we'll start to see things like that come from the Auditor General, but uh, you know politics weaves their ways into there, and there's some members of council don't like measuring anything because then there's no accountability, and that it's drifting away from results that uh, change the city to this mantra of, you know, bigger and larger government despite any logic. So what you're saying is, effectively, uh, you're conceding that there's no way you can win any of these arguments on being fiscally responsible or even accountable. Well, sometimes you, you, you get a win and sometimes you don't. But I also am realistic about the politics of council and a number of the decisions that I've seen. Uh, you know, my politics can be a lot different than the group. But, uh, um, you know, I understand that there is value in investing in some of the social programs. There's also, there, there were plans to invest in some of these things anyways, and now they've been branded as going after gun violence. 
But, uh, you know... Well, why not put up the hue and the cry? You know, look, as much as uh, he was a flawed character, that's how Rob Ford got elected. At the end of the day, uh, there were so many people who were disgusted with the unaccountability of the Miller regime, and that Rob Ford was seen as the antidote to that and a disruptor, sure. But nonetheless, uh, there were some who said, it's nigh time we had somebody in there who was really counting the pennies that added up to the nickels, the dimes, and the dollars. Am I wrong about that? No, and I think politics is a big pendulum, and it swings back and forth with people's opinions. And, and sometimes uh, uh, there's a bit of trust in putting these programs forward, realizing it's really hard to figure out what the outcome is of building a new basketball court, but it seems logical, it seems right, it seems right that kids are going to go there and play and stay out of trouble. Um, you know, I don't know how you measure that, but I also know that investing in all these programs can't be done without forgetting about the basic city services and that's what I worry about in a budget that, that is growing by 2%, the rate of inflation. Where is all the reinvestment in, you know, the roads and the infrastructure? And uh, we know that these social programs are growing a lot faster than 2%. Is this getting away from John Tory, do you think, Sherman? Um, I think it is getting away from John Tory. And I've said this many times. I admire John Tory a lot. I've had the, the opportunity to work with him for a couple of years in, in provincial politics. I liked his approach. That said, um, I'll except any time that there's a business case to build an arena that gets kids off the street and skating inside, that kind of thing. And I think there is a return on investment there that may not be quantifiable in dollars, but certainly is in in um, human effect. That said, uh, last week we hear that there's $6 million more being thrown at, and I use that term advisedly, thrown at the guns and gang situation. Why? Because a couple of, uh, three people got killed or more correctly, two people got killed and apparently one committed suicide and they were the bad guys um, over at uh, Queen's Wharf or King's, what is it, Queen's yeah, Wharf? Queen's yeah. Wharf, right. So, so that happens and uh, there's $6 million more. What exactly is the return? I mean, if you really want to discuss how you're going to uh, approach guns and gangs without taking you off on a tangent, John, um, the answer is you disbanded in 2017 a great force that looked after what? Guns and gangs and was created in 2005, the summer of the gun specifically to do that. Um, there's money there that you're throwing at the wall, hoping some of it sticks, and nothing. Nobody talking about Tavis. There's the whole issue that keeps on being discussed: carding, which is a way of stopping people who have a suspicious nature about them, without getting you know drilling down onto the uh, the issue of what they look like or what the color of their skin is. It is a legitimate police um, uh, utilization of the resources that they've got. These days, if you if you read about how they're investigating a shooting, say the one that uh, occurred the other night on the Danforth, well, you know, we're examining video. And if we get lucky, we'll arrest somebody. And we all know the answer. They will arrest somebody, and that somebody will be charged, and then they'll be out on bail. You've got to do better than spend $6 bucks so you can say you're spending $6 bucks. Well, I, I just want to remind uh, Peter and, and everyone listening, though, it isn't just the $6 million. There is investment in the police force. I think that's something that hasn't gone on. In what, in what sense? Uh, there's more officers. How many? That's been announced. I, I'm trying to remember the number, if it's 150 or 300, and, and I apologize, I just don't have that detail in front of me. Right. But there are more coming. And, um, but how many have we lost in the last year? Uh, we've lost some, but I know that there's more money flowing into this concept. It's something that, that hasn't been done in some time, and are that's we gonna important. going to have uh, more net officers on the street then? Well, I, I don't know because I don't know how they're going to be deployed. That's something that's, you know, within the walls of the police. But the expectation is if we're investing in the police force, 
we're somehow going to combat crime in this city. And I think that's something that's been missing, and I think it's something that the public has been asking for, at least where I've seen. And I think those are good things. So it's not its not like the only thing we've done is invested in social programs. There's also practical on-the-ground things. As, as Peter said, you know, these crimes are occurring. You need somebody to get out there and invest, uh, investigate and arrest the person. And then you need the justice system on the other side to keep them in jail. All right, but the personnel thing, I mean, that dials back to Richmond Street. Not enough people ticketing drivers and uh, things like that who leave their cars idling. So is it a matter of more personnel might deter some of these places where, you know, people are shooting up, uh, you know, in neighborhoods, bars, outside of bars? I mean, is that an answer, David Wills? Well, I think it has to be the answer. And, you know, it's it, it's sort of, um, you know, surprising that even even the deputy mayor isn't given the information about how many, do we have the net more or net less officers on the street? The question that you ask, he didn't know because he doesn't get that information. And I think without that data, how, how are our politicians supposed to make decisions? And then and what happens? We end up with $6 million announcement. I, you know, I think that, you know, you, you, you've raised the traffic stuff that where the police admitted they've been, they're not doing the traffic stops. We all see it. We see cars rolling through stop signs. You know, you see them going through stoplights. Uh, pedestrian uh, collisions are up. All of those things. These things are connected. And there is a feeling, I, I feel it, that I don't see police uh, cruisers on the street as much. I hear Mike McCormick talking about how, uh, you know, the, the 911 response is, is there's not enough, they're not fast enough on that, that they can't go to every call. Your house gets robbed, they do a phone call. They don't go and investigate because they don't have enough people. So it tells me, how is this budget going up uh, and yet the service appears to be going down or at least we feel it? Um, you know, the, but I want to loop back quickly on the, the, this thing about the return on investment for social programs. I think we have to remember that social programs are for everybody. They're not just for kids that aren't on the straight and narrow. So the, the hockey arena is for all kids, not just kids that are at risk, as we like to label them, or basketball courts. Those are for me and my family. They're for Stephen and his family. They're for you and your family. It's part of making the city livable. And I, I would argue with Stephen that those are core services of a good city. And in a big, dense city like Toronto, you need parks, you need places to play, you need places to go and, and do things. So they're not extras, they're not nice-to-haves, and they're not hug-a-thug. By the way, uh, you know, when we talked about uh, lack of a police response because they just don't have the personnel on 911 or whatever, the Airbnb situation the other day, and then I had the communications director with the operation on the show yesterday, and he said we put in a pilot project in the aftermath of this because they're concerned for their own image and whatever, and uh, saying there's going to be a hotline now. If anybody senses there's something amiss, uh, you'd call into the hotline, their personnel, or they'd contact the police and I was thinking, that sounds wishful thinking. I don't know that the police are there in adequate numbers or the resources, or they actually want to be uh, working by proxy for Airbnb. Do you see this as workable? Is this a pilot project? I mean, it sounds nice in theory and practice. Do you see it falling apart, David? I do. I, I don't like you're going to call this number, and what are they going to thank you for your complaint? And then we'll get back to you within 48 hours. Like, they, you know, I think the, the Airbnb, the ghost hotel stuff is. You know, any of these disruptors like Uber or Airbnb, they find their way into a community and Airbnb is going through that pain right now. I would be more thinking, you know, if I lived in this building and owned a condo in this building where the shooting was, if I don't know who my neighbor is, that's not much of a community. And if my neighbor's changing every day, every weekend, because, you know, it's rotating that way, I don't, am I going to, am I going to feel safe? Am I going to feel like that's home or am I going to not make eye contact with people in the hallway because I don't know who they are. So I think there's a problem that's going to have to to get solved, but I think a hotline, 
Like, unless they have a security force that they're going to send to knock on that door and say, hey, keep it down. Like, if that's if that's what the hotline does, great, I'm all for it. If they're just going to call 911, I can do that myself. So the answer is already there on the Airbnb. We put the rules in as counsel about a year and a half ago, and they've been challenged. And the key point in all the rules was you had to be the homeowner renting your own place for Airbnb. And it doesn't allow people to absently own a bunch of these units and be somewhere else and let these kind of things occur. There aren't many homeowners that are going to allow somebody to have a party in their house and let the place get trashed. And if they did, it's not going to happen very often. So I want those rules to be in place. They should have been in place a long time ago, but they got challenged. That's the system we got. Who challenged them? Um, city. Uh, pe- no, 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 no. Pe- well, people challenged the city, challenged those rules, but uh, they were, I guess they, they claimed to be uh, home share uh, uh, people with... With, with interest in that, and, and they went and challenged it. And I get it. I understand why they did it. But we would have been, a year and a half ago, we've lost uh, on this. And it's a, it's, I can tell you it's a rampant problem as a counselor. I get complaints all the time. And all I can say is, is that the system now is ramping up to try to regulate this, and it will eventually get to the point where it is homeowners are the only ones that can rent their place out. Well, that's what they were saying yesterday, and uh, anybody under the age of 25 would not be allowed to do so. Even that seems to me like it's a little sketchy. You just get a proxy person to uh, rent it, and the 25-year-olds and under uh, go to town. Well, one final installment here that I've got to ask. You know, Stephen Holliday, uh, you were talking about these have become chronic complaints that you've got from folks who are uh, cheek by jowl with Airbnb places. Uh, should they be taxed? I mean, there's talk the Hoteliers Association is upset. They want to see like $100 million in tax revenue coming out of these Airbnb operations. Yeah, there's a lot of special interests on this discussion of home share, Airbnb, or this type of economy. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the unions are somewhere in the mix looking for that tax money. I do know that uh, the city of Toronto gets uh, some tax out of the Airbnb home share regulatory regime, but it's really just to help run the program, the regulation of them. You know, my, my basic premise is these are businesses. A lot of people treat these type of um, um, modern businesses as very casual. You know, oh, you know, I just sort of rent out a room once in a while, a bit of cash in my pocket. At the end of the day, you're a business person. You are you are renting out part of your house, and uh, that type of stuff should go on your tax return as, as income. And if you're not doing that, you're evading taxes. So I'm okay with that type of a system. I don't sure we need a corporate tax So the tax CRA system. should go after these people? Well, people should be honest about uh, their sources of income. And if you're making cash on the side through Airbnb, you got to cough up uh, your fair share of taxes on that or you're cheating the rest of the Canadians. I don't know about corporate taxes on this kind of stuff. Uh, I'll leave that to a tax expert. But somewhere in the system, somebody has to pay their fair share to the government because people are in business and there's nothing casual about being in business. All right, David Wills. Disruptive economy, but uh, do we get our pound of flesh from these people? I don't think it's a pound of flesh, and you know, I'll, I'll take uh, offense to Stephen's comment that the unions are in there somewhere. I think one business not wanting to pay the same, play by the same rules as another business. If you're a ghost hotel and you're competing against a hotel, you should pay the same thing as a hotel. You're in the same business, as Stephen said. I think that if the, if it's not if we're on a voluntary honor system right now and it's not working, there's an easy there's an easy fix on that, which is withhold its source, and then you can get it back if it's uh, you know if it's below the threshold or whatever later on, like like the rest of us. But you know what Stephen said is fair share, and I think that's what they got to figure out with with this type of uh, with this type of business because if they're not paying and they're not not paying a fair share and it's at the expense of another part of the economy. 
that causes all sorts of problems, and I think it should just be a level playing field, and taxation is part of that. But David, it's a complicated animal. So uh, if I recall my facts correctly, Airbnb is actually physically located in Ireland. And so, you know, over the magic of, of digital technology, people connect with this concept of home share. But the bulk of the transaction and the money and the interest in all of this goes between the property owner and the person that rents the space. So in my mind, that is the business that you need to draw the circle around. That's where the bulk of the exchange of the money is. I don't know. Maybe they pay corporate taxes in Ireland because that's where the the business is. They don't. That's why they locate it there. But I think that if that's the case, we shouldn't allow a business that is set up to, to evade our tax system to operate. Like, I think that's a, like, that's a simple thing because they can fix that tomorrow. The locations are in Canada. They know that. They know where those are. There's got to be some way of requiring them to do that. And to just say, oh, they're located in Ireland, we're not going to do it, is a cop-out by the CRA or the government or whoever is, is, is looking at that. And if they can't do it, you don't let them operate. But I've sure. been sitting here really quietly and listening to this conversation, and I, I think it's a lot more complex than you guys are making it. Uh, and it's on a couple of levels. First of all, the thing was designed and sold on the basis that it was operated as what we want and what the city's rules want, which is uh, I have a house, I have an extra room, I have two extra rooms, I live here, I'm going to rent it to you because you came in from out of town and you booked it. That's not a hotel, it's renting out a room. That said, the the idea, both of you seem to agree with it and I do too, that uh, you're making income means it gets added to your personal income. You're not running a business. So you add it, You made, let's say you made uh, ten dollars or $15,000 extra renting out your rooms this year, you add that to your personal income, you pay tax taxes on it. Uh, Since it's that amount of money, unless it's more, there's no HST attached to it. You have to go over 30,000 bucks. I think it's 30,000 still uh, to actually have HST people interested in you. Corporate tax, forget about that. Unless, of course, you're running something that's akin to a corporation, which is what the first part of the conversation was about. And that's where Airbnb, you know, the stuff that they announced the past couple of days, it's a load of crap. The, The only rule that matters as far as Airbnb is concerned, listen to me, Airbnb, uh, is you have to enforce what people want, what the city wants, and what's causing all of the grief for everybody, except maybe you. And that is the people who are in Airbnb and using your services for reservations are people who live in the premises which are being rented out. All right. Uh, And don't forget, people are still paying property tax on the places that they're renting out. So uh, I don't know if that assuages anybody. Let me ask uh, something else, another topic worthy of discussion. Elementary Teachers Federation was off today. Uh, Two days running this week. They're planning a province-wide strike again on Tuesday. It's interesting because uh, Dave Woodard's reporting on Sam Hammond, who was greeting some of the protesters on the line today, mentioning that uh, they, too, are falling on hard times. Give a listen. Standing out in the snow and wind, Enfo President Sam Hammond shook hands with some of his members, taking selfies with others. He says this crowd is overwhelming. These people have already lost 1, 2, 2.5 percent, and they're not out here for money. They're out here for students. He says the showing sends a strong message. The government needs to come to the table ready to invest in education. Helen Victoris, an ETFO executive member, says Minister Stephen Lecce and the government need to take heed of what's happening here today and take that with them to bargaining negotiations. Our students deserve everything that they need to have the most successful learning environment. Dave Woodard, Global News. All right, let me ask you, Dave Wills. Now, if this is a case where Hammond's to be believed, they've already lost one, two, 2.5 percent in salary. Never make that up. So even if they get the 2 percent increase, mind you, it's going to be, you know, carrying on and uh, 
then it also uh, compounds. But uh, is there a point where it doesn't make sense? They're going to lose more money than they recoup if they got that 2% gain. Well, I think that's, you know, you're looking through it like strictly through that compensation lens that Stephen Lecce wants you to look through. I think this is a fantastic, like from a communication standpoint, it is a very powerful counter message to the single message that the education minister is putting out there about greed. So it's like, you know what, this isn't about greed. They're actually talking about class sizes. They're talking about unconditional full-day kindergarten, not conditional, all of these different things. Uh, You know, it was interesting because, you know, I was in Mississauga and I went for a walk at lunch and I walked by and there was a a teacher's protesting. And these teachers were very convicted uh, on that. And parents were coming up, bringing them lunch, bringing them coffee. Uh, so the, you know, these people are, care very, very much about the education system. I think what Sam Hammond was doing there was reminding people they're not getting paid when they're out on strike and that they're doing this out of conviction. Well, all right, Peter Sherman, though, uh, is this a, a signal that maybe there's a point at which, you know, the teachers stand to lose and are feeling the pressure and the pain as much as anybody? I think that's the problem, John, with any strike that uh, that any organization goes on. You you it's it's kind of like the discussion we were having before about investment and return if you're going to go out on strike and you're going to lose the money that you would have earned when you're on strike and then you you win the day in some degree that's acceptable to you when the settlement is reached uh and you wind up with a net zero or sometimes even a net negative that's not so abnormal that happens in all kinds of strikes i'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing and i'm not going to go off on the conversation i've had between me and wills for the past two weeks about greed i think this thing is coming to an end and and you know, my sources, I'm, I'm talking to people, I think the rope is getting very short. And I'm talking about at the government end of this thing. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be closed one way or the other. When you say uh, the rope is uh, getting short on the government end, what do you mean? The government uh, is, I think is the losing the battle? I know I th- I don't think the government's losing the battle. I think there are people who do bring lunch to uh, striking teachers, and I think there are as many and probably more who are saying enough already. You've been screwing around with this, and I've been hearing about it every day, and now I got my kids staying home uh, since middle of summer, and I'm not prepared to put up with it anymore. And you guys are making there's not more money sing- than I am. There's not a single poll to support what you just I'm said. I'm not suggesting that. I'm t- I'm talking anecdotally, as are the rest of us. I I don't have a poll. <laughs> yeah, let's, I, I'm let's talking about what people research. are saying let's, to me. You, no, you, I'm talking. I, I don't you go, go to your conservative party about riding no, association no, 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 meeting and you say, "Oh yeah, everybody here's against this." I'm that's shocked. a load of that's a load of crap, David. I, I'm just talking to people the way you talk to people, and I'm getting this back. Do I know what the numbers are? No more than you do. I'm saying that there's a he said, she said to this, and somebody's got to put an end to it. And I suspect that it's going to be the government. I suspect it's going to be a, an imposed settlement. And I suspect we might even hear words as strong as um, uh, essential service. What have you heard, Stephen Holliday? Well, speaking as a parent, I, I think we've made do. I think I had my kids down at City Hall. Uh, we actually went out for a skate at Nathan Phillips Square between meetings. It was good. But you bring them to work? I did. Why and not? And everybody's c- cool with that? It was cool. There were kids. Uh, I saw some kids around today. And, y- you know, y- you make do as a parent. We've had a couple of strike days to endure. Um, and I think mo- parents, for the most part, are making do. So uh, I think the big issue is internally in the union, and it's true. I mean, there's a tipping point when teachers have to be asking themselves, you know, why are we here? You know, there is a, there is a small salary to be gained, and as you lose a number of strike days, um, you know, there is no more money to be gained, and. You know, are, are we we fighting under uh, you know under it, protest? You guys I don't know. You're not listening. That it's not about salary to them. 
It's about all these other things, and you keep bringing it back that it's about salary. Well, we're not hearing. We'll know. No, it's because you only hear what you want to hear. In a few more days, that will prove itself true or false, uh, depending on how long this goes on. And and my suspicion is, is there's a lot of pressure on all sides to get the thing resolved. I don't think the union wants to face its members and say, we're sorry you lost all this money, but boy, we, we sure got this good policy outcome. The union has said to the province several times, Put your offer to the entire membership. We're willing to do that. And the province has not taken them up on that. So, you know. All right. Well, I was just going to say further to the State of the Union, uh, that address was uh, tabled by Donald Trump the other night. We all know how it ended with Nancy Pelosi tearing things up. Trump is gloating these days. I mean, he's uh, had a luncheon or a press conference at lunch today, and he was holding up two papers, the Washington Post and the USA Today, where the headlines boldly declared acquitted. Then there was a debacle with the Dems and the Iowa caucuses. They couldn't get the tabulations right. He's batting three for three and perhaps more, so give a listen to him. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. Right now he's holding up the newspapers, and the headlines are seen by all. Loving it. You could take that home, honey. Maybe we'll frame it. It's the only good headline I've ever had in the Washington Post. I tell you. But every paper is the same. Does anybody have those papers? Does anybody have them? Because they're really uh, like that, so I appreciate that. All right. Uh, hey, Peter Sherman, does he have a reason to gloat? I guess he does. Uh, and he's the, the world's ultimate narcissist. And whether he does some good things, which he does or not, uh, he is also the world's supreme, I'm going to use it, a-hole. He's just, he's crazy in terms of how he deals with, that wasn't a press conference. I watched the whole thing. That was putting everybody in a room who uh, is going to applaud you no matter what you do uh, and uh, and high five you no matter what you do and uh, basically running off the mouth for almost 90 minutes. Uh, that said, if you take a look at what the other side has done is doing, there is nothing going to prevent this guy from walking right back into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue come January the 20th. Or is it seen as uh, somewhat unseemly? And uh, David Wells, I'm asking you, I mean, by the way, Nancy Pelosi tearing that uh, speech up at the end of it, hero or zero? You know, uh, when I watched it, I thought that was really bold. And the next morning in the, you know, the sober light of day, I thought, oh, you know, they gave it away, right? They they did have some high ground, I thought. Uh, and I think that type of action... And it, I started thinking about it, and it's, you know, uh, Peggy Noonan wrote a piece who was Reagan's press secretary about how this was the first State of the Union address that she could remember that didn't even make an attempt at uh, promoting bipartisanship. In fact, what it did was identify the divide and try and make it wider. And it was I a thought, campaign speech. And I thought, that's exactly what it was. And, you know, Peter called him a narcissist, and I, I pulled up the speech, and then I did a search for the word I, because I was thinking, boy, this was all about him. And if you made it into a drinking game, John, like mm. that you had to drink every time he said I, mm. you would have had 59 <laughs> drinks during that. Wow. And it, you know, that's a lot, mm. you know, by any by any means. I just but, came off Super Bowl weekend, trust but, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you know something about it. Mm. But I think, you know, going back to this, like, you know, him being acquitted was a foregone conclusion. Was it one or two that were going to stand up? And it turned out only Mitt Romney stood up against him. So I don't think that's big news to anybody. I think it's inside baseball. 
to Peter's point about, you know, is he going to get reelected? I think if the Democrats go with a wishy-washy candidate like Biden, he's going to win. I think the reason Trump got elected was because people wanted something different. I think when Obama got elected, it was because people wanted something different. They did. Hillary wasn't successful because it was that same inside Washington belt uh, stuff that they don't like. So I think, you know, Bernie Sanders versus Trump, I think we're in for a great bit of reality TV when we watch from up here in Canada. And, you know, who knows? What you're saying, though, is uh, Trump would have been better served by taking the high road? Oh, he can't do it. He, he's he's, un, he's incapable. Mm. I think the Democrats would have been better served by taking the high road than ripping up the speech. Well, we'll let it go on that note. Uh, proud to hear you're standing your ground. Stephen Holliday, David Wills, Peter Sherman, many thanks. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.